Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Scott Zimmerman and Robert Fosbury. Scott is an expert in optics and has focused his attention on quantifying the health effects of natural sunlight. With over 35 years of experience in the industry, Scott has unparalleled knowledge about how light interacts with systems. Scott is now a world leader in the optics of the human body and how light interacts with life. Bob is an emeritus astronomer at the European Southern Observatory and an honorary professor at the Institute of Ophthalmology at University College London. He's an integral part within the Institute of Ophthalmology with his unique perspectives on light and its interactions with the Earth's atmosphere. His work with Professor Glenn Jeffrey has paved the way for a new understanding of how light, particularly in the near-infrared range, interacts with the human body. His physics background has proved indispensable in understanding sunlight and how biological systems have evolved to use it. This is quite a special episode for me as it's the first time I've had two guests on at the same time to discuss their work together. Both Bob and Scott have come from well outside their respective fields of astrophysics and engineering to view the biology of the human body and its unique relationship with light in a way that it was not previously been done. To me, they represent the perfect examples of why interdisciplinarity is so incredibly important, particularly now. Bob and Scott are contributing greatly to the understanding of biological systems and are continuing to use their wisdom to positively influence the future of health and lighting. To frame this conversation in as brief a manner as possible, Scott and Bob have both independently come to the conclusion that the human body, at its core, is a light harvester. Not only do we exhibit all the characteristics of a system that captures light, we funnel this light deep within us to allow it to perform as much work as it can. Our moving inside away from the influence of natural sunlight in the last hundred years is the core of our modern disease epidemic, and until our doctors and practitioners take light seriously, we will continue down dead-end roads and never make any progress. It was a real honour to speak with both of them. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Maybe we can start a little bit just talking about what you guys are working on at the moment. Um, and just maybe a little bit of background on how you got there. Maybe you can start, Scott. Well, I mean, I'm an optics guy, uh, basically. And I started looking around at all the stuff going on with photobiomodulation. I was looking to generate a new light source. And I looked around at the photobiomodulation stuff and all the work that had been done by Hamlin and interviewed him and talked to him a bunch. And But I came to the conclusion that uh, we really didn't understand how the optics of the body. I mean, it's kind of surprising, but there really is very little out there as far as information about how light propagates in the body. Everybody kind of assumes they they talk about penetration death, but as you know, Bob's got, you saw some of Bob's uh, pictures, you know, penetration death makes no sense in the near infrared because light propagates and distributes inches into the body. Mm-hmm. And, um, and bounces around and it's actually localized in the blood vessels uh, from an optical, purely optical standpoint. And it's really quite amazing. And then I started looking at the optics of the eye and optics of the brain. And you start seeing how in the near infrared, you know, you're getting all kinds of light channeling effects, what we call light guiding in the optics industry. And uh, where the, the body is going to great lengths to propagate near infrared down into various tissues, including, you know, the gray matter, the retina, actually most of the light that goes through to the retina actually pop, 
pus passes through the sclera, um, <laughs> which is kind of amazing because you got an optical element that's amazing imaging element, but then it's also a non-imaging element in the near infrared where it's actually collecting and guaranteeing that there's always an excess of near infrared on the retina. Um, the same thing holds true as we've talked about uh, with uh, the fetus in the womb and how the mother's skin actually filters out the near everything but the near infrared through the early part of the pregnancy. And then as pregnancy progresses, the skin stretches and it expands the, the um, you know, the spectral range that the, the baby is exposed to or the fetus is exposed to uh, until birth. And, you know, the more you dig into the optics, the more you figure out, hey, you know, this isn't just by happenstance. This is, you know, near infrared represents the largest portion of of the, of the light of the photons that we actually absorb. And that's especially true when you walk outside because you get this amazing effect where the fact that we're standing vertically, you know, the solid angle that of of most of the the energy that's actually our photons that are actually put in absorbed by the body are actually coming from our surroundings because it literally absorbs in the visible but it re reflects in the near infrared quite strongly so you the more you look at this and then so the, the 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 this was all part of a methodology where i was trying to understand the optics and then once i understand the optics then we started looking at, okay, what does what do those photons do? And you can get a kind of a gauge of that using some of Zostro's work from electron spin resonance to show how the free what the free radical distribution that that light is causing or those photons are causing. And then the final section, which is what I'm working on now, is, okay, we know the free radicals are there. We know the rate that they're there. Now, what is it the body's doing to respond to that? And that's where you come into melatonin and all the other hormones and antioxidants response. And what you get out of this whole thing in a real summary is, is that what we've developed is an artificial environment that we spend most of our time in that actually pushes or favors cortisol and stress hormones and creates this situation that because the way the body's set up, hormones work in opposing pairs, you know, cortisol and melatonin are are supposed to be in opposition to each other. But what we're starting to figure out is it's a whole lot more complicated than that. And that, you know, it depends on the situation. If I'm in a sedentary condition like they measure for circadian, then cortisol is high in the morning. Melatonin is high in the evening. It's pretty straightforward. But the minute you actually do something, and the reason they do sedentary is because the minute you do exercise any of these things called life, all of a sudden cortisol and melatonin go up together. Because what's happening is the melatonin is controlling. Cortisol is a great hormone. It's important. But if it gets out of hand, you got real problems. So what appears to be going on based on the transient work that we just got published in biology is, is that as you're moving those two up together, melatonin starts to shut down or suppress the cortisol. So that's kind of where it's kind of been this kind of like three stage thing that I've been working on in this discovery. And what's really exciting is, is that, you know, it's starting to make some sense. <laughs> I guess is what I'd say. 
and it's starting to link into some of the things that we see in our modern society, the stress levels that people are feeling. Yes, there's other kinds of issues associated with social issues and all that. But in reality, there may be a physiological thing. We are inducing an extra level of stress that isn't necessary. And especially when you start looking at some of the maladies and things of that, uh, different types. But anyway, that's that's mine. I'm sorry for the long <laughs> discussion about it, but... No, that's great. It's a it's a great little rundown of uh, you know, makes it sound like you did all of this work in uh, in a few nights, but this has been quite a quite a long road, I think, with uh, with your research. Um, yeah, I guess um, maybe we could just uh, briefly, even more briefly, summarize that to essentially we've found ourselves in a situation where our environment doesn't match our um, our evolution, and our body is you know exquisitely designed to harvest and uh and point uh near infrared photons uh in certain directions to basically do work in the body and maintain homeostasis and make sure we're staying healthy and this environment that that we've created is not conducive to that at all and and the the ramifications of that are very far reaching and they don't just manifest themselves in one disease or one particular type of malady uh, we're getting all of these diverse types of responses, uh, and there's likely nothing that's not being affected by, uh, I guess, our lack of near infrared, um, near infrared light. Is that is that a pretty uh, succinct summary of of what you've been looking into? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that uh, people don't, uh, it's very hard to measure. The ability to measure some of this stuff is we we found this uh, the work that where you there's very few play there's probably about four papers in the entire lit where they actually measure the effect uh, that light or exercise or anything has on hormone levels in real time during the event. You know, the entire circadian theory is based on you know what's going to happen four or five hours later. You know, it's not that that's true. I'm not arguing about the circadian, but our ability to measure is now changing with all these wearable biosensors. And what we're seeing is, is it's moving around in ways we didn't think it did as far as the hormones and hormones are, you know, like I said, I've been looking for the what's the antioxidant? What's the what's the 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 the, the response? I mean, you can say blue light's bad and, you know, what we're doing is bad, but okay, what does that physically mean? What's the mechanism? And I think that's what we're kind of on to now, where because it takes very little change in hormones to have a huge effect on a lot of things. And melatonin seems to be a very key element, you know, in this whole process. So, mm. I mean, it stands to reason it's one of the oldest molecules we've, uh, we really know about. So it makes sense that it's quite deeply rooted in our physiology. Um, before yeah. we move on to Bob, um, I wanted to know, have you read um, Fritz Holwich's book, uh, something to the effect of the influence of ocular light on metabolism in man and animal or something like that? No. It's no. A, it's hmm. an old book. It's like from the, uh, from the 40s, I think, Holwich um, wrote this, and it's all these old school studies uh, on 
the influence of light on on animals and their hormones and their blood levels and there's basically a chapter for you know um you know its effect on the liver its effect on the kidneys and it's really fascinating studies from the 20s and and before um i like the old stuff <laughs> they learned they learned from the victorian matron hospital matrons who <laughs> wheeled people outside i mean they did know they did know this 100 years ago they knew this stuff. yeah and the reason I like these old studies is because they actually did, um, they used sunlight uh, instead of, you know, doing all of the stuff in a lab. They actually got animals out into the sunlight and they were controls in the sun and, and they would keep them, keep some animals, you know, completely in the dark and, and have a look what would happen and they'd cover their eyes. And it, it's very different to the kind of studies that are done today where they're all, everything's inside of a lab. The control animals are in a lab under you know, fluorescent tube lighting, uh, you know, it's hardly a control really, but yeah, this book, um, is, I like, I like the old stuff because that seems like they, they got a lot more information out of it. Maybe they didn't know why, but they knew that it worked. Oh yeah. I mean, and you, you look back at what they used to do in hospitals with the old pavilion style where they mm -hmm. would really would bring people out and let them be exposed. They didn't know why it was doing it. They, you know, and that's kind of what I've been trying to focus on is to, you know, what's the mechanism? Yeah. And, you know, I totally believe in that, you know, it, blue and uh, UV and all that. It has so much, it's such a high energy photons that they can do random damage in ways that the body can't predict. So the body had to have some mechanism to deal when you start calculating the number of free radicals generated and how they're distributed in the skin, you look at it and you say, holy cow, you know, how in the heck are we even alive? And, you know, what you start to see is, is that it's the role of some, you know, melatonin is an amazing antioxidant and all its metabolites will go along with it. So, you know, there has to be some antioxidant response of some type. And, you know, what appears to be happening is, is that, you know, that it's it's occurring um, in in the cells in the mitochondria itself, that we're actually producing the melatonin in the mitochondria, and that that is part and parcel of just daily life for a cell. I mean, it has to have the ability to deal with the free radicals that regenerate. It doesn't put down the pineal gland in any way, shape, or form. The pineal gland... Melatonin was select, selected by by evolution to provide be provided by the pineal gland during times of low cellular activity and pump in a bunch of antioxidants so the brain can operate at eighty percent of what it operates during the day. You know, as I don't think it then is very surprising that the mitochondria would do the same thing for the nucleus where it's literally generating an antioxidant response to help protect the nucleus. You know, it's really kind of like the same thing. And you can kind of look at it from the evolutionary standpoint. You start out with a cell. We know that melatonin was hanging around there for billions of years. And then the cell got a little more complicated and developed the ability to start, uh, you know, detecting light in the, in the melanopsin in the skin area or in the outer surface. And then they went to making eyes and eventually we got to the point we have a pineal gland that's uh, allowing the brain to operate at a much higher level than it could without it. So, 
and melatonin has been in that route. Now, there's other, you know, testosterone, there's all kinds of hormones that are being affected by sunlight. You know, it's just that this one is the one that we actually have some data on, you know, and it's very limited data, but it's, it seems to indicate what's going on. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like there's a very um, beautiful story emerging um, from what you're speaking about this, um, this unifying idea about how light sort of connects all of biology together. Um, so I guess with that, we can jump over to you, Bob, um, and what you've been doing recently. I'm sure uh, there's been an update since we last spoke uh, with you <laughs> and your yours and Glenn's uh, work with this. Yeah, I'm also, almost totally exhausted at the moment, actually. There's so many things going on. Um, first of all, I... <laughs> I'm trying to listen for things that Scott and I can disagree on, and I haven't really found anything yet, but maybe we'll find <laughs> something, and it'll, it'll, it'll become interesting then when we find something. But no, I, I, in a way, I've been coming at this from a, from a different direction. I think we've ended up very much in the same place, but mm. certainly I've come to it from a very different direction. And, uh, you know, my, also my uh, approach has been rather different from Dan Jeffries as well, my collaborator in, in UCL. I mean, we... We we argue about these things from different perspectives, which is which is very productive, I think. Um, but I think yes, if I summarise the the way I've come to this is um, it's a little bit of a it's a it's a post um, analysis of the way that we've we've come in this direction, but uh, it's really uh, based on my astrophysical background, where I tend to look at things on a on a rather big scale talk about planetary scales and, uh, you know, stellar scales and, you know, the origins of light and uh, what the light looks like and how it would look like in different planetary systems and so on. But I think the, you know, the productive idea was to think, well, we, we know that solar photons essentially drive life on our planet. I mean, that's not completely true, uh, but most of the life we we see around us and, and talk about, certainly the solar photons are the by far the predominant source of energy driving the light, the life. And it seems to me we've 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 come along this route and we 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 understand pretty well how the chemical energy is produced from solar photons through photosynthesis, which is a, an exquisitely complicated process, wonderful magic going on in, in these chlorophyll molecules and so on to split water and so on. Wonderful process. Very physics rather than biology, I have to say, but it took 250 years or so to figure out what was going on. And we still don't understand all of it. But, you know, the, the, the basic principle there is you're starting with photons coming from the sun. It has to come through the atmosphere, which does a bit to the, 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 the spectrum, but not, by, not very much. Basically, sunlight reaches the ground, with the exception of the ultraviolet, of course, which we, you know, we've, at the moment we'll forget about everything below 300 nanometers. It's all absorbed by ozone in the atmosphere. But the sunlight, the visible light that we see, and, and, and the infrared light, to, to a certain extent, at least the near-infrared light, is relatively unhindered by the atmosphere. So we basically get sunlight on the ground, a bit diminished in, in brightness. And that sunlight uh, works through photosynthesis in cyanobacteria and plants to produce chemical energy in the form of sugars. And it's brilliant the way that it does it. But basically, you have solar photons going in, and that energy with some efficiency, which is not terribly high, but high enough to do some good, uh, gets converted into chemical energy. And that either gets eaten by the rest of the biosphere, or it gets stored as stuff 
which ends up as coal and oil and, and all that stuff. So all of that stuff comes from photosynthesis, basically. So solar pho photons really are the ultimate driver of energy. And we know that life is a, is a, is a very low entropy process that, you know, it's, it, it fights disorder and export, uh, it fights disorder. In fact, it exports disorder and it tries to do things in as low an entropy way as possible. And that's a guide to us to try and understand what the solar photons are doing. And uh, it's a focus for asking questions about what is this light doing if it's being used, if it's being used in a low entropy fashion which we would expect for life. So the photosynthesis tells us a lot. It tells about wh where the energy is coming from and being stored as chemical energy. But what about the rest of the biosphere, that perhaps much of which eats the chemical, eats the, the sugars that are being produced by plants? Um, you know, what, what, are they, what do they use light for? Well, you know, the obvious thing, and it's really the stalling point, I think, for most people's thinking, they use it for vision. Uh, animals can see. And in the Cambrian explosion, you know, animals suddenly say, hi, we can make eyes, we can uh, we can be predators or we can avoid predators. So, they, you know, there's a natural process of very, very quickly evolving vision. And I think, you know, my look as an astrophysicist looking at what all the biologists are doing and so on, they've somehow forgotten something because, you know, it's not just vision. There's other light out there, which is perhaps invisible to animals and us. Uh, what that what is that light doing? So I would ask the question to the biologists. We've got light beyond the range of vision, say beyond seven hundred nanometers in the near infrared, before it gets all soaked up by water, which is call it what you like, one micron, thirteen hundred nanometers or something. They, the water gradually absorbs. Uh, what's happening to that light? Uh, and the evolutionary biologists will say, well, sure, uh, life will use that light because it's there. It's a source of energy. It's a source of process, process of life. Therefore, of course, it will be used. And what's it used for? And then you look at the literature, at least 10 years ago, you look at the literature and say, well, you know, so what's it being used for? You know, we don't know. One or two ideas, perhaps. The Victorian matrons knew about it, but they didn't see it in quite the same language um so i think that that was the thought that i had what you know what will life do with the near infrared if it's not using it for vision but maybe using it for other things and this is where we come into the same into the same territory and i suppose again my big realization was that actually tissue, living tissue, plants and animals, in fact, almost all living tissue, is remarkably transparent in that uh, in that region. I mean, it's almost completely opaque when you get below uh, 600 nanometers or something in the red. But between that and 1300 nanometers, it's actually rather transparent. And I see the analogy with the leaves of plants, which are, of course, opaque in the visible because they're busy absorbing visible light to make sugars. But beyond where photosynthesis occurs at around 680 nanometers, the plants think, hey, uh, this light, I don't want this light. It's actually making me hot and making me lose water. Uh, so I want to get rid of this light as quickly as I can. So you look at leaves uh, of plants and they're incredibly reflective in the in the near infrared they just want to get rid of that light as quickly as they possibly can 
And I've argued with the, the biologists or the botanists about this. I say, look, do you realize how efficiently plant leaves reflect infrared light, near infrared light? And they said, you know, they, they don't. They don't often look in the infrared, I don't think, but yeah, we, we know this. We look at infrared photographs and we see the leaves are brighter than the white clouds sometimes. So um, they have a very good mechanism for uh, getting rid of this near-infrared light. And perhaps anthropomorphically, I think they're, they're donating it to the rest of the life on the planet. They don't need it. So they're saying, hey, guys, we don't need this stuff. Why don't you use it for something? And so life has evolved to use that light, that light to do something interesting. And I guess the other realization I had um, was very closely related to the, the thing Scott's been thinking about for a long time, and that's body optics. Um, I was fascinated to see what you guys were doing on body optics. I mean, I knew a bit about the brain, like getting into the brain, but you know, just the idea that the body was working to make an optical system that captured light and got it into the body it was really a new idea. And I recalled, uh, I have two analogies. Um, one, one is a rather scientific analogy, and that's I some years ago, I think it was around 2014, I decided to observe the light coming from a very dark thundercloud with my spectrometer. So I, I spent a long time looking at this thundercloud. It's quite faint light, but I, you know, I, I, I integrated, uh, you know, I, I, I did lots and lots of uh, sort of time lapse with the spectrometer and collected light from the thundercloud. And I looked at the spectrum, and you know, I'm very familiar with the spectrum of the atmosphere. I spent, you know, I spent the last years of my life doing it. Um, and I thought, well, this looks really strange, because a lot of the very weak absorbers you only see when the sun is setting on the horizon, a lot of the weak absorbers appeared very, very strongly in this thundercloud spectrum. And yet the sun was at 45 degrees, where you would never see these lines if you were looking directly at the sun. Something was happening when the light entered the thundercloud uh, between entering it and coming out the other side. And so the obvious answer was, well, this light is, is bouncing around between um, particles in the thundercloud, probably mostly water drops of a whole range of sizes. So it's bouncing around between water drops. And uh, sometimes it will go through the water, water drop and it will absorb some of the uh, near-infrared light. In, in just in the water um, vibrational absorption spectrum. But often it will reflect off the uh, water drops and be a lossless, a lossless scattering, essentially, uh, in elastic, an elastic scattering process. And it turned out when I, when I modeled these uh, weak absorption lines, they're actually the absorption lines you get when you have collisions between two oxygen molecules. Now, I don't know if you know about this stuff, but in the atmosphere, you get things called collisionally induced absorptions, where if you get two oxygen molecules coming together, they interact with Coulomb interaction and they'll bounce off one another. But while they're interacting, they're distorting the energy levels in the in the other molecules, and they're removing some of the uh, degeneracy in the uh, in in the in the in the quantum states in the energy levels of these molecules, and they're allowing transitions to happen that don't happen in undisturbed. Uh, oxygen molecules, and they're called CIAs, collisionally induced absorptions. They're actually responsible for a small percentage of the um, the global warming. If you compare them to carbon dioxide or something and for global warming, these collisionally induced absorptions 
are there at a level of a, a few percent. So they're of great interest to the atmospheric physicists. But these collision-induced absorptions, you see them very clearly when the sun is low on the horizon. In fact, if you use a visual spectroscope, which I always have next to my right hand, this one here, <laughs> if you use a visual spectroscope on a setting sun, these collision-induced absorptions are the strongest features in the spectrum. And they were they were recorded by Angstrom when he first studied the telluric spectrum of the sun uh, a long time ago. But he had no idea what they were. But they're marked. Some of them are marked in his maps as unidentified features. Now they're well understood. Anyway, the the light coming out from my thundercloud, and I've got this on my Flickr site actually. Uh, the light coming out from the thundercloud has very strong uh, collision-induced absorption lines, as strong as they would be if the sun was on the horizon. And, you know, I thought about this for a long time, but when I started thinking about the transparent body, it struck me that this is exactly what we're looking at in, in, our, trans, in, our, in our transparent tissue. We're getting light into the tissue. It's scattering around between cell walls, any sort of refractive index in homogeneity and so on will scatter it. But the absorbers in that range, the, the molecular absorbers are weak absorbers. So you have to travel quite a long way within the tissue before you get your photon absorbed by one of these uh, molecular absorptions that we find in the, in this transparency window. And um, it was a sudden realization because Glenn and I, for a long time, been looking at mitochondria, looking for strong absorbers in mitochondria, and there is a strong absorber, and that's in the sorry band in the, in the visible in the in the blue at four twenty nanometers. Very strong absorption partly from the heme, probably partly from the cytochromes and so on. But um, there's a very strong absorber in the ultraviolet. But then we looked into the red. You know, we had we had samples in little one centimeter curvettes. Uh, it's a very small path length. And so we didn't see any absorbers in the infrared. And we got very dis disappointed because, you know, we knew that mitochondria were interacting with infrared light, but we couldn't see the absorbers. And it suddenly dawned on me that it's because it's a weak absorber, and that's the whole point. They have to be weak absorbers. If you have strong absorbers, you never get the light in. So the light gets into the body, and it has a chance. By scattering around, doing a random walk through, through the body, it gets a chance to interact with one of these weak absorbers, which are the, you know, the, the important um, uh, 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 processes concerned with respiration, so on, like, like blood and cytochrome C and the electron transport chain and perhaps a few other things which we've not necessarily recognized yet. So this is this is a machine, you know, the, the transparent tissue is a machine that basically captures a photon gas. The photons get in and they work, it's just like a gas, they bounce around uh, like, like, uh, like molecules in, in, in a bag of gas until they're absorbed by something. And uh, this is this is this is actually this is your body optics in a way. It's nothing fancy. It's just the fact that you capture all the photons in this in this volume, and they stay there much longer than they if they went straight through. So you know you're you're, you're, you're you, you, it's it's a light trap. It's a yeah. And, well, it's, uh, it's even more from from the optics standpoint. Uh, just quickly, is, is that um, you know what I found was is when I started modeling this diffuse volume. It's very hard to act. One of the hardest measurements that you can make in optics is to try and actually characterize 
a diffusive volume. It, I know. It, it's not it, it's non Hamiltonian. It's a, it's a lot of stuff going on. But but when you try and get that, what you see is is this amazing effect of. It's, I, I liken it to if you ever gone out and seen a snowdrift uh, around where they piled up from an asphalt uh, drive or driveway or parking lot, mm. and the sun shines on it, and eventually what you'll notice is is that there it gets darker and darker because more and more of the black asphalt particles are absorbing, and that's exactly what happens in the body from the standpoint it bounces around as you say, mm. and what happens is is that the location, what it does is it, if you actually do the model, you see that it actually bounces around and eventually ends up in the blood vessels because that's where there's a strong absorption point. In your picture, you show that, well, that absorption has been shown by various people to increase blood flow by causing a vasodilation of nitric oxides and things of that nature from the free radicals that are generated by the near-infrared. So what happens is, is that literally the body collects and distributes it throughout the, as far as it can. So by bouncing around, but localizes it in the blood vessels so that you get this added effect of, a, of removing more trash, essentially causing more blood flow, bringing in more, mm-hmm. any, uh, you know, very various uh, macrophages and things of that nature. So to me, you know, it, it's it, it's a where we kind of join up on, on this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But, no, it's a fascinating, slightly different perspectives, but we're actually looking at exactly the same phenomenon. And if we look at the spectrum of this, uh, the spectrum of a human body in in my hand, for instance, I looked at the spectrum of what's going through my hand. You do see a number of absorbers, and one of them, obviously, a strong one, is the deoxygenated hemoglobin in the in the veins. Notice you don't see the arteries really; um, you just see the veins. You don't see the bones, which surprises the biologists. You know, they're almost essentially <laughs> as transparent as everything else, <laughs> uh, which is fascinating. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to watch any of Roger Seaholt's uh, videos. Oh, I have. Talking- yes, I'm a great fan, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got the one where he said, you know, as you say, the old the old way that used to take a, a red light, stick it up against your neck so that they could see whether or not the, your sinuses were or yeah. you see yeah. various things because you could literally, you know, if you listen to the literature, the optics guys that are out there, most of the thing they say, oh, it only penetrates a millimeter. Well, how mm. come I can stick? I mean, anybody, a kid who's told a ghost story and stuck a flashlight up his nose. Mm up in, in his mouth, it can tell you that it's going a lot farther than just a millimeter. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's just the red edge we see. It's not the near-infrared component that extends mm-hmm. way out. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I say, I just think it's fascinating how the body, as you say, uses the entire solar spectrum. And we just threw it away because we couldn't see it. And evolution will not allow you to throw it away. And I think if you think of this in terms of entropy, if you have these infrared photons coming in, if you're going to just absorb them as heat somewhere deep in the body, that's a high entropy process. If you convert them into energy, into ATP through the mitochondria, you can use that energy to move things around. You can use that thing to that energy to think with, and you know, do cosmology with, if you like. Um, 
that's a that's a much lower entropy way of uh, um, tracing the solar photons through. They're always doing something useful. Evolution will always do something useful. Yeah, to, well, uh, one of the things one of the things that I kind of actually feel a little proud of is, is that when we did start doing the um, calculations of free radicals generated by various wavelengths, Zostro did this great work where he took a ton of skin samples out and he exposed them to very narrow bands of, of different wavelengths and throughout the visible and into the near infrared. And what you found when I took the data, he was looking at it from a standpoint, he was actually worked for cosmology uh, for a cosmetic company. And he was trying to look at how to make better sunscreens and things of that nature. But when you take his data and you invert it, and look at it, the number of photon, average number of photons required to generate a free radical, all of a sudden, out of his data, drops every one of the water overtones, seven of them, in the data. Mm -hmm. Wasn't looking for it, didn't expect it, whatever. But what it shows is near water absorption bands, you get an increase in the free radical generation rate at those particular bands. And there's a ton of bands throughout the near infrared into the farther, as you say, farther mm -hmm. out. And what it shows is, is that our understanding is, is a little bit off as to what's going on in the, in, in that, in those regions. And, you know, you also, once you start doing that, you start seeing that, you know, the UV, the visible and the near infrared are generating equal amounts of free radicals compared to the UV and the blue. Um, it's pretty, pretty straightforward, uh, calculation, but, uh, yeah, as you say, what I liked about one of some of your, one of your comments was, is that, uh, you were talking about the need for blue and red together. And I mm -hmm. think that that's where we really agree is, is that I believe that you in nature, we're never exposed to blue and UV light without uh, photons, without uh, an excess of near infrared photons. And, I believe that that's because the near infrared, the body's using the near infrared to set up various protections because it cannot determine if a, a photon, you know, 480 or even or 300 nanometer photon is going to crack a molecular bond and you don't mm -hmm. know which one, you know, mm -hmm. because it's, 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 it can't, you can't, the body couldn't do it. So the body has developed a system where we, change out our skin every cells every 20 days and we're flooding that area with you know if you look part of the 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 studies that we are the things we found was is that you know they're starting being able to measure hormones on in sweat and other types of things and you start seeing that where melatonin is coming out onto the skin getting reabsorbed into the skin you've got all these other effects going on in the skin and it turns out that the skin is actually generating, can, is capable of generating basically every hormone that the we do internally, but it does it locally. And that's being driven by the fact that the free radical generation on our skin is so high from UV and it's so, you know, it's all localized, you know, the blues and the ultraviolets are being absorbed in a very narrow band of the skin that you see that, that there's all this stuff going on. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I think, you know, all the, the, the experiments that Glenn and his people have been doing over, over the years now show that this this balance between the blue and red is, is really necessary. One, 
you know, as soon as you as soon as you put those out of balance, then you're in you're in trouble. You can certainly yes. mitigate the effects of lots of blue light by using using uh, red light and near infrared light. So yeah, and I, and I guess my my only thing where I maybe disagree with you is is that I believe that there is not a healthy solution with visible only light uh, photons, you know, systems. And that you need the near infrared component because it's doing other things we don't even know about yet. Absolutely, and, yeah. I, mean, I don't disagree with you over that. No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Not. It's just it's concerning to me that that the 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 industry is slowly starting to move and accept that there's something going on, but the solution is is oh we're going to put red lights everywhere at night and we're going <laughs> to you know everything. I mean we're turning everything into a bordola, you know a bordolo. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm not convinced. I mean, there seems to be this separation where we're meant to see from, you know, in the visible spectrum. But this other part, if if I keep on saying, if, if we could see in the near infrared, we'd lose all our ability to differentiate between an apple because everything would be flooded with, you know, light. be yeah. white. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have this opportunity to put back to restore the near infrared and everybody's trying to do it halfway with a little bit of red is my opinion we've uh glenn and i have had um very interesting conversations with um architects and lighting engineers we we had a we had a meeting with a very very big multinational company of engineers uh, of uh, ecologically friendly engineers i better not mention their names at the moment but um they are they're very serious about this and they have uh we we talked to their lighting uh chief lighting person and they're extremely interested in this stuff and they uh, they get it i mean the, the person we talked to had a phd and she'd worked on um glass uh, transmission oh, really? uh, for, for buildings and so on so she really knew about this stuff and she was absolutely fascinated by this and we're having we're having more meetings with these people and they have a huge influence on the building industry they're, they're involved all around the world on some of these very innovative building uh projects ecologically friendly building projects so we talked about you know infrared rejecting glasses and how dangerous they would be for health in buildings we talked about the influence of trees on reflecting near infrared light into buildings and indeed, we talked about lighting, the artificial lighting as well, of course. And uh, I think I mentioned your idea of using, uh, you know, a combination of LEDs and filament lamps to get a much better spectral fit to what we think is is healthy. So, uh, and these people are are serious about this. And Glenn is actually getting them into his lab and 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 doing experiments on the individuals involved in doing this to see if he can improve their vision which makes them happy <laughs> but they are they're taking this stuff very seriously i think and companies like this will have, will have a big effect companies uh, like this will have a big effect on influencing lighting companies because they'll be the per people who are specifying the the internal lighting yeah. so i think this is very interesting the way this is developing yeah well you know it is amazing how we've managed to go from a situation where we're always exposed to to near infrared you know to a situation where we have zero near infrared mm -hmm. and i think that's the dichotomy or the issue is is that 
we didn't just take a little bit away. We took it all away for a lot of people, especially mm. I think the recent study showed that uh, people in some nursing homes get five minutes of uh, sunlight a month, you know. So I saw one of the I just glanced at one of the diagrams in your write-up and I saw something about this and I thought, yeah, that's very interesting. You had various hospitals and surgical sur surgeries and care homes and so on with the amount, the integrated amount of infrared light. Is that is that right? That's what I I didn't have time to yeah, look at it in yeah, detail. But. Yeah, yeah. The the point was is that you know when you start quantifying, you know, there was this really neat study that they did where they put a, a near infrared vest over 10% of a body, uh, you know, made this vest and it covered 10% of the body. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that people don't get is, is that unlike your eye where you, it comes through a little, mm -hmm. you're talking about the surface area, the volume of cells that are being engaged. Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, you're talking about 10 to the 17th mitochondria that are sitting there mm -hmm. and uh, they're all, you know, so you can have a huge effect uh, with that. But just putting back even a five kilojoules worth of near infrared showed in the use via this vest caused a four-day four reduction in time in the hospital. Now well, you can look the, at that. The, the, this is the Brazilian experiment that uh, Schultz yeah. took. Yeah, I know. I yeah. know that. Well, that's a that's a brilliant experiment. <laughs> it is. It is, and you know. But the question is, it's, it's always the issue is, is it's, it's a, it's a, is it a question that the treatment made them better or was the hospital so lousy, you know, causing them to be sick? Mm -hmm. And I would argue that it's really quite easy to generate the levels of, get, get uh, significant near infrared into these hospitals. And like, you know, why don't they actually measure the hormone levels you know, because we know that melatonin and cortisol will, you know, you you get a fever in the evening or afternoon because your cortisol levels are dropping because high cortisol tends to suppress the immune system. It's important to do, but it suppresses the immune system. So what ends up happening is, is that, uh, you know, we've got going into this environment that literally in hospitals that literally is suppressing the immune system in the hospital. And I'm kind of going, you know, this doesn't seem like what you want to do in a hospital. And, you know. But Scott, this is, this is I mean, this is so obvious to us. I mean, you look at yeah. hospital. I, 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 was in, I was in hospital recently because I broke my leg, basically, at the beginning, end of July. And um, so I was in hospital and I was thinking, Jesus, you know, I'm not getting any near infrared at all in this room. And you know, if you're if you're sitting for a week in a hospital bed or in an in intensive care unit, you're getting no near infrared at all. And it must be extremely unhealthy, extremely unhealthy to do that. Well, and, and you know, to be honest, I started out working on this stuff for lighting, and then uh, my granddaughter she uh, came down with neuroblastoma. And so I converted over my wife and I have spent a lot of time and money trying to understand uh, the effect of light on cancer. And there's some really great studies out there now that are associated showing that melatonin suppresses glioblastoma and all these other things. And there's some work done in, in Germany and, and other places where they're showing that not to stop, you know, it's complementary to have the near infrared with 
standard treatments and it's complementary. Mm -hmm. They got multiple studies out there. One that shows that near infrared helps with uh, preventing you rejection from the, the, the uh, chemo. And then they got melatonin treatments that are, and I'm saying they're the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. but trying to get the medical industry to look at light as a therapeutic device is very difficult. And people like Roger is, is really starting to push it a little bit more. But, you know, all I'm saying is, is that we are controlling our immune system based on how we're exposed to lighting. And, yeah. and why would we make it harder on the body rather than helping the body? So. Well, just just while we're talking about Roger, I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of his videos. I think they're great. But one thing that I I'm, I don't have his email address, so I haven't written to him. But he talks about most of the energy of sunlight being in the infrared, which is not true. It's most of the photons that are in the infrared. That's what he means. But he says energy, and I, as a physicist, I find that disconcerting. <laughs> Well, okay, I'll be defensive here. <laughs> what, what, when he makes that statement, and if you look at some of the graphs you're doing, if you look at how light, the, the photons that actually enter the body, the majority of them and the energy is significantly higher in the near infrared because you're basically walking around in an integrating sphere where the light reflecting off the leaves, you know, it's, it's really kind of amazing because the fact that we walk upright you know, you look at the solid angle that comes into the body from sunlight, this mm. sun source, is about 50 times lower than the solid angle that's associated with all the reflection around us. Now, you know, and on top of which, if you're wearing even light clothing, it's blocking the visible, but it's not blocking a good portion of the near infrared because it's penetrating. So in mm. Roger's defense, I think what he said... I'm probably the one that has, has made him make that statement, but I agree with you. If you're just, you know, one of the pet peeves I have is, is that, you know, everybody wants to go to ASTM 1.5 type spectrum of sunlight. And in that particular case, yes, you're right. There are more photons, but there's equal or the same amount of energy. But when you get in the environment that we are adapted to, it's actually the fact that we are vertical, we collect from a much larger solid angle than you do from the other. And that's what- Okay, what I'll, I'll, go along. I'll, go, I'll go along with that, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we tried. I'd love to just <laughs> jump in here and, and do a little bit of a recap of uh, what yeah. we okay. touched on so far. So I think what's been so delightful uh, talking to both of you independently and now together um, is that you both sort of come to this conclusion uh, that basically our bodies and uh, I'm sure other animals as well are exquisite sort of light harvesting devices. And we not only capture, but we funnel the light um, to make sure we're using uh, what nature has to offer as best uh, as we can. And uh, that's really uh, quite fascinating to me because you're right, you know, it's very difficult to get this story about light across to the the practitioners across in, in the medical field where light kind of seems a bit silly, I guess. Um, you know, why, why would light work? Why would be, why would light be an effective treatment for anything? It's, but, too, it's too cheap. It's too cheap. Yeah. Well, <laughs> without going down that rabbit hole, because that <laughs> is a very, very big rabbit hole, but 
um yeah i mean the the point is in the in the last probably century our light environment has changed beyond beyond you know comprehension really um and i you know on maybe some of my more uh uh, wild thinking days think that that's probably the the primary reason we've we've got all of the chronic diseases that we have today is that our light environment has changed you know more than our diets have changed more than you know more than our exercise habits have changed the light environment has changed substantially more and that's you know occam's razor we should look at the things that have changed the most to explain the changes in health patterns that's what i think anyway um but basically we are light harvesting um, devices and we use that um, exquisitely well uh, to harness all of the power, uh, all of those photons. And we've basically lost that in our environment. Like Scott said, it's not like we've reduced it by 20% or 50%. It's, it's a complete different environment. It's, it's a totally alien environment for us. Um, and the worst part is it's invisible. So we can't really make sense of what's going on uh on a, on a you know one dimensional level um so that's that's sort of where i see um uh, where this discussion has sort of um uh, you know where you guys have sort of come to the same the same story from two different very two very different points of view which is really hmm. fascinating to me um I have, a, I, guess... I have a question i have a question for you cameron on, on this very topic because sure. you know glenn and i have discussed you know, we, we, we're understanding this stuff and we're seeing the problems, we're seeing the issues, we're seeing some of the solutions. How do we get the message out there? This is the problem. You know, we write a scientific paper, it's read by 50 people, if you're lucky. Um, how do we how do we actually get, and you know, you guys are getting the information out there. You're one of the ways of getting the information out there. And, you know, we thought about this and this is why we thought about the architects, because, you know, these architects are interested in building buildings that are healthy to live in. And so they want to know this. The lighting companies will want to know this at some point. At the moment, they probably don't want to know about it because, <laughs> they, you know, they've, they've got the market. And uh, but if but if the people are specifying what they have to produce, the regulators, the architects, the lighting engineers are saying, look, we want something different, then it will happen. But we have to get the message out there. So we we, we collectively need a, an understanding of how we most efficiently make this knowledge available to people. Now, I you know whenever I talk to anyone, I had my 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 hairdresser this morning is a very interesting and interested young lady. Uh, I talked to her about. I mean, she's interested in wildlife. She's interested in gemstones and all of the physical things that I'm interested in. And uh, I tell her about this this work we're doing. She's absolutely fascinated. So then, you know, it's not difficult to get this idea over. It's just that how do you reach? How do you reach the people? And I realised on 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 the radio in in the UK recently, there's been quite a strong focus on ultra processed foods and the damage they're doing to to people in terms of obesity and diabetes and all of these things and the fact that it's costing the nhs billions to treat type 2 diabetes and if they could get rid i, I talk to medical practitioners whenever i see them i say which disease would you most like to get rid of in order to make the nhs function properly and they say 
diabetes. They spend all their time on diabetes. And, you know, it's it's a no-brainer. You know, we know one of the things you can do, stop people eating ultra-processed foods, for one, and get them back in a, an acceptable light environment. We know the answers. How do we how do we make those answers known? Um, well, personally, I think the pendulum has to has to swing. I think things have to get worse before they get better. Um, the entire reason that I ended up, you know, interested in in all of this is because I got very very sick and doctors couldn't help me. No specialists could tell me what was going on. So I actually had to. I had to go down these rabbit holes and figure out what the hell was going on. And fortunately I stumbled upon, you know, people who were talking about the light problem, uh, you know, all, all of these more uh, esoteric ideas that made a lot more sense to me, the, the foundational things, you know, beyond, you know, I don't really worry about diet too much, which is weird because that's where I started out. I'm a nutritionist, but I think, you know, it's not even close. What's more important. Light is, is so much more important. Um, and I think it's just going to take a lot more people to become dissatisfied with the answers they're currently getting. Um, and you know, I see it every day. I work in a hospital. Um, and just as a side note, my office has these horrible 4k lights, um, these LEDs, uh, that just really hurt your eyes and all of the doctor's rooms have them as well. And, um, I remember cause outside in the, in the waiting room, they're all 2,700. And I remember saying to my boss, cause he designed the suite and I said, why, why the cool, cool white lights in, in the, in the rooms. And then out in the waiting room, they're all, they're warmer lights. He said, well, they told me that the blue lights look more professional. And <laughs> I was just like, uh, uh, and I, I wanted to tell him about, you know, your, you know, your work and, and how, you know, being in a blue lit environment is, you know, can make you go hypoxic and it can lower blood pressure and, and, you know, doing what we're doing in there with lung function testing, it's probably not a good idea. Um, but you know, it's, it's very, I know what you mean. Like I, I'm struggling to get more people interested in it, even, you know, even friends and family, they go, that's very interesting, but then it's difficult for them to um, transfer that into, into actual habits aside from me going around changing all the light bulbs in, in the house and, <laughs> and giving my friends light bulbs and things like that. Um, but I, unfortunately I think things have to get worse before they get better. And they will, they, will. they will because we've just, seen, we've just seen the tip of the iceberg, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, th there has to be, there has to be a tipping point at which, you know, we, uh, we start to go, well, hang on. Uh, diabetes is clearly more than about more than just processed foods because, um, you know, it, it can't explain the whole story. We would have figured the diet thing out by now. The reason the, the, um, diet, like all of the literature in, in looking at what the perfect diet is, is all te so terrible. Um, and that's because it's not connected to the light environment. Um, you know, I, I, I think diabetes is much more, a a disease of of bad light than than bad food uh personally um but yeah i mean how how are we gonna how are we gonna convince people that that's a big enough player to really is, start is looking it, at has anyone looked uh i mean i i think it would be an interesting statistical thing to look at the um 
to try and extract the real history of type 2 diabetes in the population and also the real history of obesity, excess obesity in the population over the last 20, 30, 40 years, perhaps, and just yeah. see what what the connection, what the what the uh, connection is. It probably yeah, tracks. well, if you if you look at the one graph I have in there, well, that's showing the effect of change in spectral range. Um, mm. You know, I got in more trouble with that graph than anything I've ever gotten in trouble with because, you know, immediately, oh, that's correlation, that's not causation, and, you know, mm. all this other stuff. And that's mm. really, I think, the, the core problem is, is that, and that's why, I mean, honestly, I've been trying to actually get a defined mechanism. You know, when you talk about processed meat, mm. well, if you look at it, that's high in cortisol. You know, if you look at what we do with chickens, there's 33 billion chickens in the world mm -hmm. and they all claim, oh, we're hormone free. Well, we've inbred them enough to where they're in constant pain. So by definition, mm -hmm. their cortisol level is much higher than what, uh, you know, what you would if you had a free, true, you know, free range chicken. And in fact, one of the things that uh, we found interesting the people that are actually growing chickens are kind of interested in our technology a little bit but from the standpoint of they're recognizing that they're elevating cortisol and they're looking for some other alternatives. And, but, you know, it, to me, it, it is hard. I mean, I, I was absolutely ecstatic when Roger did a, a video on us, we got 3.4 million hits, all these doctors and nurses. But as you say, you know, it's been very difficult to convince them that, hey, it's worth changing out that light bulb and putting in this one, or maybe you should actually redesign the building to where you bring some near infrared in, you know, and bounce it around the, the building rather than reflecting it all off. And, you know, that's that's the problem is, is that, you know, like I say, we've had three million hits on on a video and still can't get through to some people. And I think that you also have to understand that the lighting industry made a bet. It made a bet that, you know, they could get rid of all this extra wavelengths and told everybody you're going to save you all this energy. And to now come back in and say, well, that stuff actually meant something. It actually did something is a, is a hard nut to crack in the lighting oh, industry. Yeah. Oh yeah, you sure. know, you know it, it. It you don't go back to your customers and sell them. And unfortunately, I see this circadian thing as being a pretty much of a diversion from getting down to the real. If you actually, you know, I used to put up hay in in Kansas, and you know, you slept like a baby after you did that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you were out in the sun, you were doing exercise, you. Feel, most of the, the sleep disruption issues, I believe, are not associated with we don't have the right color light. It's associated mm. with the fact we haven't really pumped up our, our melatonin levels like you normally do. And that was one of the things that I think was so fascinating about when you actually start measuring melatonin and cortisol during stressors, you, uh, you know, like exercise and things of that nature, you see that they actually go up together. And they work together and the melatonin eventually causes the, 
when you have it, how many times have you had somebody say, you know, why do I feel so sleepy after X, you know, going to the beach? If you look at those things, you'll find, and that's what the data shows, is, is that once you get up to a certain point, it takes a while for that melatonin to get out of your system. So immediately after, you know, those various things, a cold shower, uh, things like that, you're seeing that you're feeling observationally, I would argue you're feeling the after effects of having this excess melatonin working its way out of the system. And, you know, the fact that we don't stimulate that is actually a negative for the body because at the end of the day, you're, you're increasing the amount of free radicals that the body's having to deal with. So. Can I, can I pose something to you both? This is sort of backing up maybe a little bit before in our conversation. Um, you touched on uh, absorption spectra uh, of water, and obviously we are we are bodies of water. Um, I sort of see life as the the meeting point of of light and water. Uh, I think they essentially dictate what life is on this planet. Um, so, what do you see as the role of water in this in this story that we're telling about light? um, in, in human biology? Well, I, I, I put my two cents in. Mm-hmm. I believe that water is the primary promophore or whatever you want to call it. Um, especially bound water. I mean, when you start looking down at the cellular level, um, we are composed of these 10 to the 13th cells that are surrounded by, uh, the interstitial fluids. And, you know, you got 24 per liters in, in the cells and you got 11 liters in the interstitial fluid and you got five liters in the plasma and all those things, you know, when we look at it optically, that's a very complex optical situation from the standpoint of you got this cell that has various absorbers in it, but in reality, most of the light actually just bounces off the various changes in refractive index and throughout the water spectra windows. And so that's how you get this distrib- distribution that Bob shows so well in some of his pictures. Hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, to me that, when you start looking at it at that level, you start seeing, as I said, that, you know, at various absorption bands, you've got free radical generation rates increasing. And so there's a lot of, you know, I think water is, everybody's trying to look for a chromophore like, uh cytochrome c or whatever and all i'm saying is is that water is doing a whole lot of stuff in there and uh being used by the body it just makes sense to me and that's why i I actually would argue that going out into the even the longer wavelengths as you can see from one of the pictures in there you know yes this it, it it localizes in the skin but um, it's changing, if nothing else, it's heating that particular area and causing it to locally to have a much different environment than if you didn't have it. And so I don't know if that answers your question, Cameron. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I, I asked Michael Hamblin, uh, whether he thought water was the primary chromophore. Um, and he said, no, no, it's cytochrome C. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Cause I would have, I would think it's water. Um, given that, you know, the vast, vast majority of, of molecules in our body are water. But 
Um, I see where he's coming from, but I, I thought for sure water has to be the primary one given, you know, and it, you're right. It has several absorption span, uh, absorption spectra bands, uh, that dip out a little bit further into the infrared. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. I was going to say, have you have you ever looked at the absorbance spectrum of water from X-rays to long wavelength radio? No, I haven't. Um, but I, I, I'll show it. I'll show you. I'll show it to you and change your life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do it in my notebook. I'm sorry because I I could find this, but uh, I'll do it in my notebook, and uh, I'll I'll put it there. And you see that the blue line there. Yeah. Uh, on, on the on the left hand side is X rays, and on the right hand side is ULF. It's the w wavelengths they use to communicate with nuclear submarines underwater. Okay. Yeah. And you see this huge dip in the middle, which we call the water hole. Right. And that's centered. That's centered right in the visible. Okay. Yeah. And uh, as you climb out of that in the infrared, you get more and more absorbance, obviously in the vibrations and the rotations of the water molecule, and it remains opaque all the way through uh, the whole um, infrared, submillimeter, millimeter, and centimeter wavelength radio. This is why you're, you you lose satellite TV when there's a thunderstorm, because the water is, you know, we, we, we have to put our millimeter wave observatories on tops of very high mountains to avoid the water vapor. But this, this water hole that coincides with basically uh, the, the visible and the near-infrared part of the vi visible spectrum. It, you know, it's the reason, it's the reason we have life. You know, the, the light, it's, it's a necessary condition that uh, that is transparent in, in, in the visible. And that, that bounds the transparency uh, window on the long wavelength side because the water bands increase very rapidly in strength as you go into the infrared. And then the things like uh, heme uh, start at 600 nanometers as you go into the into the. So you're left with this window between the water and the biomolecules, which define the transparency window. That's well. That's what I think about it anyway. And I I agree with you. I think there are things going on with water. I think the photons that are hitting the water bands, you know, Schultz uh, uh, vest experiment was done at 940 nanometers, which is in one of the. It's in the strongest water band below one micron. Uh, so I don't know, that that was not by design, that was by accident, but it still seemed to work. <laughs> I, I, I have to ask you, um, you know, Scott mentioned, um, you know, there's a there's a difference between, uh, I guess, what Gerald Pollack calls bulk water, and then there's cellular water, which is uh, more commonly being called structured water, or, you know, there's a whole host of different names it's being called. Um, but is there a difference in the absorption spectra of biological water, water that's inside of our cells and bulk water, like the water that might come out of your tap? Is Do they have different absorption spectra? Because I know the structure of the this crystalline water has these um, hexagonal shapes that look like they, uh, uh, almost like aromatic amino acids where they're ready to absorb light is there a difference there do we know who's got to answer that one, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> well you know gerald pollack was a it was a really nice guy and yeah, is a really, really nice guy but he got crucified over yeah. easy water yeah. and you know i think that slowly 
they're beginning to realize that there's something there. And we actually tried to do some optical measurements of it using some prism approaches, and but never got any good results that made sense. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the, I think that it's really hard because there's so many people that want to crucify people when they're trying to discover. And so I have a personal problem with people, you know, not being open to, to having discussions about all different kinds of things. So I guess is how I put it. Maybe maybe it's because that's what I've been going through for the last three years. I mean, you know, it's just I think that the, we're we kind of shut down discovery in a lot of ways because people are being too hard on on, uh, you know, they want proof. Well, <laughs> proof is, is a hard thing to actually pull off. And, uh, you know, well, I, I have a story here as well. I think Glenn was interested in this idea of. Uh, Maybe in the same person, I can't remember the paper actually, but the idea that uh, in on, on very small uh, physical scales, the, the, essentially the viscosity of water would change. And so the idea was what the the, the, the ATP pump, uh, the rotating ATP pump, was lubricated by uh, this special water that uh, um, that was was influenced by light or whatever, and. Um, it sounds like an interesting idea. I read the paper at the time, but I, I have a I have a good friend from Durham who's a, a soft a soft matter physicist and a very bright guy. He's an FRS, and uh, he you know he's, he does all this soft um, soft matter stuff. And I, I explained this idea to him, and basically his reaction reaction was rubbish. You know, forget it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't let that influence me too strongly because of, you know, the, 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 the ideas that you have. I, I'm, I try and be open to these, but it, it, uh, there was a time when Glenn used that as his main justification for working on infrared light. And I yeah. dissuaded him from putting too much emphasis on that because I thought that was, it was interesting, but there was n really no, no way we could easily address that and look at it ourselves. Yeah. 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 No, I, it, it, I mean, to get back to your other statement about how we actually get people to pay any attention, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of it's going to boil down to if they start showing more and more uh, correlation and causation with various diseases and behavior, activity, activity, things of that nature. And that's why we spent, I've spent so trying, much time trying to understand a measurable mechanism. And that's why mm -hmm. I, I kind of ended up at melatonin and cortisol is because they have a huge impact. It's well known that they have a huge impact. And here we're starting to show that it's actually, you know, being affected by the near infrared component. And, you know, what will actually change people's minds is when uh, some lighting companies get sued. <laughs> so that unfortunately will be what, what it takes in order to get them to actually do something. But And it's unfortunate because uh, there's so much promise in the area that it's, um, you know, frustrating, I guess it'd be, I'd say, is, is quite honest.
I've seen some doctors uh, suggest that uh, there will be a time in the near future that where uh, these LED lights that we're currently selling will have cancer warnings on them. Um, I'm not sure if that's in my lifetime, but uh, you know, it's it's true enough that it makes me concerned. No, I, I was just going to say, I think that it. Uh, Bob makes the comment, and I, and I think it's true. Is you go and you explain to somebody that we took away 90% of the spectrum and we're putting it back. They say, that's a good idea. And here's the reasons why you should do it. And I tell them some of the reasons why you should do it. The public has very little, then they want to know how much it costs. And that's why we spent time trying to develop a light source that is economical and, and does what we, we say it's going to do. What I find fascinating is, is that uh, optically, the effect of that should be most in children and women, because women have thinner skin than males. Children have a, uh, you get more of the light deeper into the body. And that's exactly what we see. We provide the light and provide it. It has two modes. It basically allows you to operate at full brightness where it's got a three to one near infrared to visible. And then you are, and then you can switch it to low mode where it's 10 to one where it's basically just a little bit, and people use it like a little nightlight. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, we're getting people saying, I sleep so much better. My kids sleep so much better. And I, I'm afraid that, that, that you know, to some extent, that's more, uh, more effective than trying to prove the science, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we're, we're at, the point we're at right now. We're just starting to say, Here's what it does. Here's the spectrum. Here's what their spectrum looks like. It's not the same. This looks what sun looks like. And, uh, you know, try our light. Fire light is great. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. And and uh, the other thing I was going to just quickly say was, is that, um, you know, the question comes down to, by, by putting in, the near infrared back into our light sources it simplifies a lot of stuff you know what are the the, the extent i was talking to one guy they've spent two million dollars trying to develop a circadian lighting system for a hospital and it has you know like 15 different leds in it or something like that and all these control systems and all that and i'm saying well here you know you just put the led with the incandescent filament and it simplifies the drive characteristics and all that. And it just does it naturally. And, you know, I'll sell it to you for, you know, 20 bucks. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating because there's not really any practical issue associated with putting it back. Because what mm. happens is, is that you can simplify the design and from a system level standpoint, you can get efficiencies that are comparable to what they're getting now because every mm -hmm. time somebody tries to extend the spectrum, be it add violet, be it add red, whatever, all of a sudden the, the great uh, argument of 120 lumens per watt goes out the door because, you know, if you want to add those parts of the spectrum, you, the LEDs are very not efficient as the filament is to go into the near infrared, but as far as adding those extra parts to the spectrum, you're essentially, it's kind of like uh, the people that are putting red LED lights 
and mm. for for bugs and stuff like that. Mm. They're getting 30 lumens per watt. Mm. And it looks red, you know? So, you know, I, I practically speaking, there's really no longer any real benefit associated with just providing visible. Mm. Because, I mean, to honestly provide visible, you need more red, you need more violet, you need all these other things. And when the minute you try and add those, the, all the lumens per watt numbers go in the toilet. Mm. So, you That's know. That's very interesting. It, so what, yeah. what stage... What stage are you at in producing these things? Are you are you marketing these things yet or not? Yeah, yeah, we 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 got a DC version. We have a lamp that we sell. That, uh, as I said, it's got two positions. It gives you a day and a night. And because I, you know, quick little story. I I, I um, we did an installation down at Princeton University and. I was talking to one of the guys there and he said, yeah, we put in all these color changing lights in our conference rooms, but we had to take them out because we were breaking out in fights over what color temperature they wanted, you know, because they could adjust it. So, so, uh, you know, we designed the thing to actually just, you know, it goes from, as you dim it down, it goes from 3000 Kelvin down to about 600 Kelvin. And as it dims, it actually drops its intensity and it's, just a function of voltage and so hmm. so it's pretty straight well, yes we are starting to market it as cam uh, cameron will tell you uh i'm a i i'm good at science but i'm terrible at actually getting a product out the door um so <laughs> well we ought to we ought to get glenn, we ought to get glenn to get some of these so he can try them out i think i i, I i'm not going to negotiate that but glenn can negotiate that <laughs> yeah well i mean you know that they're they're available, and um, we're trying. As I was telling Cameron, we're trying to get the UL on the AC version. But even if I get the AC version, it's a 120 AC. So you guys over there and in Australia are difficult. So it's easier just to send you a DC version so that you can plug it in and be done. And mm. uh, it'll take up to five lamps or something like that or you can we actually have a version where you can actually plug in your existing lamp and just convert over to our bulb and mm -hmm. yeah so i think that's you know that's what we're selling now and mm -hmm. we're starting to put it into some stores and things of that nature what's the stuff i would just like to point out we're talking about the uh nearer bulbs n-i-r-a um and just so if people want, if people are hearing this and they're wondering what we're talking about, they're the nearer light bulbs that, uh, that Scott's making, um, that are correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, half led that take care of the visible portion and then half incandescent run at a low voltage. So as to produce plenty of, uh, near infrared to balance out all of the visible, uh, portion. Yeah. And, and I like it the best because it also has zero flicker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's that's that to me is important, too, because I think it's all part of this stress component that people are getting. A lot of people are sensitive. I know one guy that mm. he literally can't walk into some rooms when there's LEDs or fluorescence and, mm. you know, has done a lot of work to figure out that's the flashing. Even though it's small, it's it's enough to cause him problem. Yeah. And I think it's important, important to point out um, sort of the story that you've been telling that um these this the broadband the the broader spectrum of near infrared is is more important um 
there are a lot of, like you said, these red bulbs that, you know, are monochromatic that, um, you know, after having spoken to you, uh, I think it's, it's a much better idea to switch over to something that's got a broad spectrum rather than monochromatic, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one being that, you know, monochromatic light does have physiological effects and some people probably won't respond very well to just red light or just yellow light. Um, so I think having a nice, you know, uh, light with plenty of near infrared that's going to mimic sort of a firelight uh, is going to be the best option in all of those cases. And it's great because you it's got the, the separate options for, for lighting, uh, like you said, the three to one or the 10 to one near infrared to visible so uh, you can use it in different scenarios as well i just think it's the probably i haven't had the chance to try them out but i i, I imagine uh, they're going to be probably the best option for people who uh, are considerate about their lighting options at home and and wherever they uh, have light bulbs uh yeah, yeah i just think it's a really really important uh part of the coin i mean you you talk about it, you can't consider the circadian without the other side of the coin being the, you know, the, the photons that are actually coming out and what, what we need as well as what we need to minimize. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, um, the, the broadband characteristic of the sunlight is very important. And I, I just, every time I turn around, I model something. Why is this going on? Why is light going down here? And then all of a sudden you start to see, well, that's why it's doing it. And, you know, there's a physiological effect. I mean, I could say it is the most humbling experience in the world to actually look at how much body has done or how the elegance of which the body is designed to, to absorb and, and collect near infrared in these ways that nobody seemed to, to, to know. I mean, I think we were kind of like the first to really start showing how light propagates. And um, go ahead. Have I told you Ikea? Do you know Ikea, the, the store, the furniture store? You don't have Hell yeah. Any. You know yeah. Ikea. You know, yeah. you, know when, you know when you walk into Ikea store, they take you around the zigzag path, which goes for miles. Yeah. Towards Until you can get out to the other end. So you visit all the different products on the way. And this is the <laughs> model we're talking about. The, 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 yeah, the, you're right. The, the products are the the weak absorbers. They're only weak absorbers. They don't sell very much, but you know there are many of them. And uh, the light goes in, and it takes this long path through the store and visits the maximum number of uh, of products on the way. That's so a great way a, to put it. It's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful analogy for the uh, for the tr transparent part of the body. Yeah, and, and you know it, it. That's exactly what happens. I mean, yeah. you know, and and we have so many interesting tools now that they didn't have back. You know, they they you know, Florence Nightingale did statistics to come up with the idea that everybody should be outside and get fresh air and all this other stuff, but she didn't understand the mechanisms. Now we're starting to have tools. Uh, you know, I, there's this a really amazing paper by Yakimo. And where he actually used Raman uh, microspectroscopy to actually show that the outer 50 microns of the skin are organized. It literally, um, you get the, the uh, 
the melanin is actually reduced and is actually bleached out of the outer 50 micron, independent of what your skin color is. And so we actually have this very thin transparent layer. And why does it do that? Because if you look at the absorption of 285 nanometer UV, you know, B, which we need for to break apart cholesterol, that it is actually a been it gives you a 5x increase in the amount of um a reduction in the absorption of 285. So what ends up happening is we have this little microreactor on the outside. It also happens to be where you know, when he did this uh, the the measurements, he showed that cholesterol was localized in that same 50 microns. And so, you know, you, you look at this and then you combine that with the work from Hudson, you find that if you take keratin, you know, the outer skin cells and you actually uh, uh, look at what happens as a function of wavelength, you get a get a 6x increase if you expose those skin cells to the entire solar spectrum, not in, versus UV versus visible. Mm -hmm. And so what you find is, is that you get this hydrogen peroxide component that comes out and is what happens with melanin you have white hair i have no hair but bottom line is is that you know hydrogen peroxide is very good in combination with light for bleaching out melanin and so there's all these little things that are going on in the body that we had no idea were there before and yet we have the ability it's like you were talking about blue light nano live has this amazing uh, microscope, uh, holographic microscope, uh, well, I forget how to so call it, but it basically allows you to watch uh, live cells while they're being exposed to light. 480 nanometers. Guess what happens when you expose a, a live skin cell to, or a fat cell to uh, 480 nanometers? The mitochondria stop moving. And, <laughs> you know, but if you expose them to 635 nanometers, they actually are just fine. They don't have a problem. So there's all these things that we've got going on now that, that we can look at and we can say, wow, that's kind of interesting. What's going on? And it's I'll give you, I'll give you another, another example of that. I don't know. There was a paper um, from the people in Bristol just down the road from me. Uh, and these are botanists. And they were studying... Uh, uh, Cameron, we may have talked about this in a previous discussion. I, I don't so. know. They were, they were studying iridescent begonias in the Malaysian rainforest, and these are uh, deep in, under the canopy, and they only got uh, green light coming down. Well, obviously they got infrared as well, but they, in the visible, they only saw green light, and they they found that the leaves were blue iridescent, and they were trying to understand why. And when they looked at the structure of the, the, the positions of the chloroplasts and so on, and they found that there, there was a, a layered nanostructure with a separation of about 150 nanometers, something like that, uh, which actually trapped uh, the, the light in, in a resonant structure where the antinodes were where the chloroplasts were. So they were taking, <laughs> they were taking the, uh, the, the green light and trapping it in such a way that uh, you 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 interacted the chloroplasts with the antinodes of the of the standing wave uh, yeah. to increase the efficiency of, of photosynthesis to use the uh, green light effectively. It's a very very Isn't nice. It's always amazing. Quite a lot of detail, and uh, I, I'm just always amazed at the at the the the, the elegance of the of nature. 
It's just yes. it's absolutely amazing. I was going to say, I don't know if you guys have heard of John Ott, but um, he used to do all the time-lapse photography for Walt Disney. And uh, he was he was made an honorary uh, uh, professor or something at uh, whichever university he was collaborating with. And uh, he does like an hour documentary on YouTube of a lot of his work. And uh, he there's footage on there of him putting chloroplasts on um, a microscope slide and then putting different color filters over the light and seeing what happens inside the chloroplasts. And it's fascinating to see what different colors, what different wavelengths do to the, to the activity inside the chloroplast. And this was, I don't know, God, this would have had to have been the sixties when he was doing this. He was, he was, he, he very, very quickly realized and, and he didn't know why, but he realized that full spectrum uh, meant everything for, for biology um, and to grow these plants and film them in a time-lapse manner. He had to get um, uh, plastic that transmitted UV on the top of his, um, his greenhouses to grow because he couldn't grow uh, several plants without the UV. So uh, yeah, it's kind of tying into what you're talking about with the different wavelengths mm. doing uh, incredible things in both, animal and plant biology well you know and i think that you over and over again you see that you know the body isn't trying to optimize for one thing it's trying to survive from multiple different angles multiple different things so you know the solution like picking one particular aspect of light or whatever um you know, is, is in my opinion, you know, foolhardy in some ways, because, it, <laughs> you know, the body does, does an amazing different, you know, like I say, if you look at the, the idea that there is some kind of a photo bleach region on the outer part of the skin that everybody has, that's transparent at 285 nanometers, you know, that's one aspect of a whole lot of other things. And, you know, I, I like uh, Bob's comments about uh, blue and need, blue and red needing each other, you know, mm. and I, I would argue it's near infrared, but we can argue about red. <laughs> but, but, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I actually, that's a very interesting point, because I still puzzle about 670. What's 670 doing? But, you know, there's yeah. there, there is a chlorine at 670, which. Uh, you find everywhere. It's ubiquitous. You find it in cheese rinds. You find it in eggshells. You find it in your poo and bird poo and everywhere. Yeah. And I don't know necessarily. I think I know which one it is, but I've not ever seen it identified. That it fluoresces at six seven five nanometers, and uh, sorry, it fluoresces at six eighty nanometers, and it absorbs at six seventy five uh, six seventy five six seventy five yeah. nanometers. Yeah. yeah and, but I mean, uh, to your point, there's there's a lot of a lot of, you know, that's really one of the frustrations with a lot of these uh, uh, tests and things that you try and run is, you know, a lot of times you get a 10% or a 20% change. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I think that I make the argument that what we're looking at is the we, we didn't do that. We took everything to zero. I mean, mm -hmm. for a lot of people, there is no near infrared in their lives. For a lot of children, they do not go out and play outside. They go inside under artificial lights to to do their stuff, uh, to to do even sports. 
And, and, you know, that is such a monument. I keep on saying we are literally living through the largest reduction in solar exposure in, in human history, you know, you know, and what effects it's having. In the history of the planet, actually. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. You know, it, 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 to me, it's a, it is, and we, what's crazy is, is that we never noticed, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, everybody just responds to the visible portion. And totally ignoring the fact that we totally wiped out all this other stuff. And uh, so we do respond to the lack of near infrared. We just respond with disease. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a, a valid way to look at it. But and it's frustrating because it's so easy to put back. I don't know what's like in the in the States or Australia, but certainly in Europe, it's illegal to sell um, tungsten filament lamps. Yes. No. Yep. Yeah. I think it's everywhere. Yeah, but uh, what 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 it is is that we uh, use the the little microfilaments. What's what's amazing yeah. is is that it takes very few uh, little filament lamps to generate significant number of optical watts in the near infrared mm. because they're essentially 100% efficient at mm. doing it. Um, so we're considered a hybrid, and we're actually not under that ban yeah, um, okay. hmm. so you know and <laughs> uh, it's just uh, it, what i am under is uh, the fact that uh, everybody uh thinks that an led is okay so mm. what well, while we were talking about um uv light a little bit i mean obviously it's on the other uh, other end of the spectrum in the uh invisible side um Last time I, I messaged you a few months ago about melanin and um, and you I, I asked you about melanin being a semiconductor and you said, yes, melanin is a semiconductor. I've been thinking about that quite a lot, um, mostly because I have no idea what the implications of that might be. Um, I, I, I don't know whether you've read the work of Robert O. Becker um, the orthopedic surgeon uh, from uh, Syracuse uh, who was looking into the DC electric current that, that runs throughout the body to regulate wound healing. That's what he was interested in. And uh, he was very interested in the fact that bone and, or bone in particular was, was a semiconductor. It had the collagen appetite um, matrix. You know, one was a P and one was an N type semiconductor. And that helped regulate the DC current um, that healed bone fractures. Um, and it got me thinking, you know, we've got melanin sort of all over. Is that playing a role in this DC current that's regulating, um, you know, cellular processes? You want me to take it or you want to, Bob? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not going to take that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll take it. Um um, well, if you look at it from an optical standpoint um, and and look at how melanin is distributed in the body, uh, particularly on the skin, there is uh, it optically it uh, and I show this in one of our papers is that uh, it the texture on the epidermis between at the epidermis layer um, where the melanin is mostly located is very equivalent to what we do in solar cells um, to actually increase their efficiency. And it 
you know, may or may not be the, the issue there, but it is optically, it's very fascinating that the body, yet most people think of the, the texturing that's going on at the, at that interface as being a reason to, um, from a mechanical straight strength, but optically it localizes, uh, sunlight right in the region where melanin, melanin particles are maximum and you've got an interface. So you can argue that uh, there may be some effect there. There has been work done here down at Temple where they've actually taken melanin and created solar cells out of them. Mm. And uh, so it actually does work, whether or not the body's taking advantage of it. I think a bigger issue with melanin is, is that uh, for us, the reason we use a three to one near infrared divisible is, is that to my knowledge, we're probably one of the only people we actually measured people with high melanin content and looked at the, what it takes, especially in the near infrared, to, you know, um, how much energy is transferred through uh, people that have 40% melanin versus 5% melanin. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely fascinating that if you look at it uh, between 600 nanometers out to around 1100 nanometers, it's about a three to one difference uh, the amount of energy, the amount of photons that would have to be provided to somebody who has dark skin versus somebody who has light skin. And, you know, it, it, to me, it's just absolutely fascinating that we have so much issues associated with the black population, African-American population at higher latitudes in Chicago's and, you know, the vitamin D deficiencies and it looked to us that we needed to have, you know, at least a three to one ratio to provide for everyone in the population. Um, and, but then by the time you get out past about 1100, water takes over and we all look exactly the same, as you can see in that one picture, Yeah. you know? So, you know, I would argue that, um, you know, it just makes logical sense that someone who has very high levels of melanin uh, is designed to operate in an environment that is much higher intensity. You know, if I go to the equator and it's hang out, I end up like a French fry, you know, but somebody who has much higher melanin level is able to handle it uh, in, a, in an entirely different way. Now take that same and reverse it and put that person up at a high latitude uh, with minimal amount, it can have some, I believe, some really negative effects. So, you know, I, I keep on saying that the black population needs a higher level of near-infrared exposure to the compared to the white population. Yeah. So that's, mm. I guess, my response to melanin. Yeah, yeah, it's it's super interesting. Uh, I've been, uh, as, as it rolls over into summer down here, uh, I've been uh, trying to get my melanin up as well. Um, <laughs> and that sort of takes me to this idea of um, biophotons. I don't know if either of you have sort of looked into this, um, this notion that uh, all of our cells are releasing an unspecified ultra-low, um, you know, UV sort of these very, very small, I mean, you, you need these uh, photomultipliers to even pick it up. So we're talking like individual photons, as far as I'm aware. Um, have you guys looked into biophotons and, and what that might mean uh, in, in the context of biology? 
I took melanin, so you got to take this one, Bob. <laughs> well, I, I can't, I can't take it directly, but I do know one one of our colleagues, one of Glenn's close colleagues, mm -hmm. John Metropolis, actually is in Sydney, or at least he was in Sydney. I, he's in France now. I've I've also spoken he's, he's, to him. You, you know John, yeah, he's I in Grenoble. John, yeah. I mean, he's he's an advocate of this, and I, I must admit, I've never been entirely convinced, especially about the UV ones, because I, I I don't understand where you get the energy to emit a UV photon from. Mm -hmm. If somebody could enlighten me about how you could do that in these noisy environments. I, 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 but the other thing I, it did strike me. And in fact, I sent him this a copy of this paper. There's a paper, very nice paper about all the chlorophylls, bacterial chlorophylls and all the chlorophylls, where they looked at the phosphorescence from these chlorophylls. So you get, you know, you get the normal fluorescence you get in the chlorines. Uh, next to the, uh, the the resonance absorption, um, but also all these all these chlorophylls have a longer wavelength, like around one micron, uh, phosphorescent uh, emission, and uh, that's playing a role somewhere because it's uh, it's illuminating the way the excited electrons actually propagate through the the various paths down to the ground state again, but. Um, and I, I just wondered if you know the, the these um, sort of one micronish photons at a very low level, but obviously can be measured because they've measured them in the paper. And I wondered if that was related in any way. But of course, these are low energy photons, not UV photons. Yeah. The UV photons I don't get. I don't get how you can emit a UV photon. Yeah, but I mean, then maybe just I'm not clever enough, but. Um, I don't really understand it either. The only place I read it was was in a book called uh, Light in Shaping Life. Um, mm. Very interesting sort of textbook style thing that runs through the history of um, how light uh, interacts with with life, basically. Mm. And they've got these amazing photos from photomultipliers where you can see um, the fingertips and uh, like the tongue in particular emit these these biophotons more than any other part of the body and it fluctuates mm -hmm. throughout the day um so yeah i i'm not really sure what to make of it um but yeah i thought maybe you had heard of it um but yeah i'm not really sure what to make of it i mean we 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 try and keep open minds i must admit but we we yeah. tend to be we tend to be influenced by our ancient education to think of i need to know the mechanism yeah <laughs> Before, <laughs> yeah, very old, very old-fashioned view, of course. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, so I, I, don't know, you, I don't know. But... I saw you taking some notes uh, as we were talking. Was there anything uh, you, either of you wanted to um, sort of discuss a little bit further? Speaking for myself, I'm totally knackered after. <laughs> After three sessions today, I'm yeah. not sure I can think straight anymore. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, lots of very interesting things come up, and lots of things I'm going to look at a little bit more. But uh, right at the moment, actually, I mean, this is vis-a-vis -vis of nothing. But um, I'm actually working on um, a paper, a review paper on Arctic visual ecology with uh, a, an ecologist who works in Tromsø and Svalbard. And this is a result of our paper on the reindeer, the vision of the reindeer, or a partial result of that. And we're looking at the the way animals behave in 
an Arctic light environment, which of course is not fundamentally different from any other kind of light environment, except for uh, the length of the twilights, which can be obviously 24 hours a day, almost. Um, uh, but this is raising some other uh, interesting issues about low level lighting and what it actually implies. And the one thing I discovered by doing this, this has actually surprised me because I was studying the uh, the way that the twilight fades as you get to larger solar neg negative solar altitudes. So between the, the three kinds of twilight, the civil, nautical and astronomical twilight. And I made a lot of measurements myself down to sort of the, the darkest part of civil twilight, which I can do with ordinary spectrometers and radiometers. And then I connected with my guys in, in Paranal, in the ESO observatories in Paranal, who'd done a study of the uh, twilights down to right down to darkness to minus 18. And when I joined those together, I, I fitted my radiometric results in civil twilight with, a, with an exponential, the brightness uh, as a function of solar altitude with an exponential. And it was a beautiful fit. In fact, the R squared equaled zero. <laughs> Sorry, one, no, not, not zero, one point zero zero zero. I didn't get to the where it actually de uh, deviated from one. Uh, and then I, I used those to calibrate my spectrometric measurements, which were only relatively calculate, uh, calibrated. So I was able to fit those onto the same the same level. And then I, I got the, the, the measurements that were made with astronomical telescopes right down to much fainter magnitudes. And all of these fit on this single exponential, right the way down until the sky tends to dominate, the starlight and the air glow and the zodiacal light, which is near the end of astronomical twilight. So you get five orders of magnitude of brightness of twilight, which perfectly fits a simple exponential law. I know it's a single process of sunlight scattering off the uh, upper atmosphere, um, but it really blew my mind that this should be such a simple uh, physical law. It's quite—it's actually quite stunning. I can show you the, uh, the diagram. This is the—if you see, uh, the, the, these are the these are the twilights up here. This is civil twilight, uh, nautical, and uh, the, the mirror astronomical twilights. And you see all those measurements down there. Um, five orders of magnitude, they all fit on that straight line, which is an exponential. And then it, it curves up at the bottom where you start seeing the, the starlight and the, the other low-level sources of light in the air glow. I thought that was yeah. really cool. <laughs> Nature is amazing. I mean, they, have yeah. some, they have done some simple physical modeling of the, of the twilights, and it does kind of follow that kind of law. But the fact that I just fitted it with a, a simple exponential in Excel yeah. and it straight through all the data, I thought was... <laughs> really cool. I like anyway. things like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it does bring up the the issue that I think that, uh, you know, is getting more and more attention, which is the artificial uh, light at night and the effects of it. And, you know, that's, to me, um, one of the prime drivers is the fact that we came in and developed these light sources that are essentially cheap to run that would only provide visible light. And, you know, it, it's created this, this behavioral, you know, some of the things, some things are driven by science, some things are driven by behavior, like my neighbors. They put this most awful 
outdoor light in that they can't dim. Mm. And so it's on all night and it's blue almost. And, you know, the, I guess my argument is, is that in some ways the LEDs are, are not only bad for us, us personally, but for everything else, because not because blue light is awful. It's just, it's so easy to put it everywhere. And, and you, the, bright, you, the bright lights are not helpful for security because you can see much more in dim light uh, for security than you can in this glare, glaring light. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, and, the, uh, the, point, the point is that the artificial light at night has, has removed five orders of magnitude of visible light that you can see with the naked eye with a dark sky. So yeah. it's you know, it's locked five orders of magnitude off off the nine orders of magnitude you, or I can see. It just lops off the bottom five orders of magnitude, which is yeah. But but crazy. I mean you know, and and it, it, what's crazy about it is is that you know the DOE did this effort, pushed this so hard because they were trying to save energy. We haven't saved hardly any energy mm -hmm. energy because what's ends up happening is that people put more light bulbs more places, and especially at night. You know, are they saying it's increasing by 10% every few years from the space station, you know, <laughs> when they're measuring? And it's not only increasing based on um, uh, the the intensity or the amount of uh, output, it's also shifting to the blue, mm -hmm. you know, as Bob's case is being given. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's... It, to me, you know, that's where everything is kind of coalescing around the same issue. You know, having visible only light sources with high efficiency is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. And the reality is, is that it's affecting our health. It's affecting the insects. It's affecting, you know, plants. It's affecting all these different, you know, animals. There was a really cool study where they took uh, a bunch of scorpions and, and uh, spiders and they put them in two containers, one that was exposed to light, sunlight, one that was exposed to visible only light and happened to be fluorescent, I think, at this particular point. And they were they not only uh, ran through the, this for 14 days and then measured cortisol levels and saw a huge spike in cortisol, but they also observed that during the 14 days, the ones that were under the visible only light never came out of their bur burrows versus the ones that came out of natural light. And I think that the behavioral aspect of what we're doing is almost as important as the physical, physiological uh, changes that we're doing. You know, you know, you got bird kills coming into the, 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 all these buildings, you know, millions of birds. And, you know, we need to start taking into account that it's not just, does it make me sick? It is, does it make other things not work well? Stops and, in breeding as well. You know, stops insects breeding. Uh, stops yeah. firefly breeding. I mean, obviously. And uh, so, yes, it's a, it is a disaster. And uh, we have to make a major change. Well, well, and and I my concern is, is that everybody's running to, oh, we're going to put up a bunch of red lights. Number one, it's inefficient to do it. Number two, uh, you know, you really just need to turn off the light. <laughs> you know, it's it's not that complicated, you know. Uh, but, you know, in our neighborhood, 
up lights on every house to make them look pretty. And now that they're doing it with LEDs, they have a whole lot more blue content. So mm. to me, it's, it's frustrating. Mm, okay. it looks like looks like we've got uh, a lot of problems going on, but I I think uh, I think we've come up with some pretty decent solutions as well. Um, it's just a matter of uh, getting more people aware of uh, of the problems and adopting the solutions. Um, so I guess like from a practical point of view, the takeaways from all of this would be get outside as much as possible. You don't even need to be directly in the sun. That's the beauty of being a a bipedal, upright, uh, you know, hairless ape. Um, sit under an apple tree like Newton did. Exactly. You you just have to be outside. You don't have to be directly in the sun. Um, and be careful with night, uh, with light at night. Once the sun has set, you know, um, it's it's really not. It's it's kind of more logical than anything else. We, um, you know, you don't have to think about it too hard to go. Well, that kind of makes sense. Um, mm. So those are, I guess, those are real takeaways, and um, you know, who knows how much difference that could make to the health of everyone on the planet. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. We've... And I, I would, I would argue that we can take some. We need to get to the point that we have some real hard studies associated with, you know, what the spectrum really doing to us. Mm. You know, if you look at almost every study out there. Um, they'll compare fluorescent to LED. They'll never compare it to sunlight. Sunlight. You know? And it's, yes, you can split hairs and say, you know, I I truly believe that, you know, if you have a low blue content at night, it's better than having high blue content at night. But the reality is that's not what sunlight is, yeah. and it never has been. And we're messing around with the hormones, behaviors, and even some neurological issues. So, and they need to fight, figure out how bad it is. Well, we just did two hours, um, which is pretty damn good. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we could have gone for another two quite easily. Um, but for our own sanity, uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll cut it off there. Uh, I'm I'm super super happy with this. I've been really looking forward to it. I I hope I've been telling people. I hope you guys write a paper together uh, at some point so I can say yeah I I I got them together. I did that. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, we, haven't, from... we haven't we haven't disagreed yet, have we? I don't think. Not as far as I can. Yeah, no, I don't think we have. No, and, uh... no it's been very clean um, from the states <laughs> to the UK to Australia. I don't know how we managed the time, but uh, we 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 got it all together. Um, yeah, I'm super happy with this, and and hopefully people uh, listen to it and and get some uh, good ideas out of it and uh, start to make some changes. Um, yeah. It'll be slow at start, but hopefully with things like this, we can get there. You should you have the symbol of a random walk because it's relevant to our discussion, but it's also relevant <laughs> to the photons in the in the in the transparency band. I will never forget the uh, the IKEA analogy. Yep, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and it's nice to meet you, Bob. Okay, nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed it, especially if you made it through the whole two hours. 
Um, if you'd like to support Scott and Bob's work, I've left a few links in the description if you'd like to check out their work, particularly if you're interested in looking at Scott's uh, bulbs, his hybrid incandescent LED bulbs. You're more than welcome to use the link to go and check those out. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can subscribe so you get notified whenever I release a new episode. I'd also like to encourage you to leave a five-star review or give a thumbs up if you like the episode. This is a simple, no-cost way of supporting my work and helping me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave any comments on my YouTube channel as I do try and read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like updates about the podcast, information about health, or if you're just looking to reach out to me in general. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Take care.